Well, this year, Sarah Jade has gone back to school for early childhood education. And in addition to the academic achievement and potential career advancement, uh, it's been fascinating for us as parents of school-aged children to have access to all of this high-level information and insight, but all of the science and psychology that goes into how we as parents are totally messing up our kids. You know, as kids age, they either mature like fine ripened cheese or like milk that's been left on the counter a little too long. And whether they turn sweet or sour is influenced by so many different factors like reading together and unstructured play or, or negative things like junk food and too much screen time. You know, all these inputs contribute to how we uh, develop towards maturity. And so as parents, it's not just fascinating, it's actually formative in how we're thinking about how we're raising our kids. And so it's no wonder to me that as Paul continues in his ascent to the heights of harmony in his letter to the Philippians, that he turns his attention to the spiritual development of his spiritual children, you know, wanting to provide all the right inputs to help them grow to spiritual maturity. He says in chapter 3, verse 15, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. You know, Paul wants them to rise to the heights of love-abounding harmony. And he knows in order for that to happen that it's going to require a heightened level of maturity from all of them. And he describes what that maturity looks like. He says, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Here Paul provides two defining features of spiritual maturity. First, he explains uh, how spiritual mature Christ followers deal with the inevitable differences of opinions that are going to arise in any community of faith. You know, he says that we don't just fight amongst ourselves or retreat to our own corners or even go our own separate ways. He says that when we're having trouble seeing eye to eye with one another, we actually need to redirect our gaze heavenward and look to God for clarity and direction. And we don't just look to our favorite pastors or authors or podcasters. We don't simply stick to our inherited familial or denominational or even political affiliations. We don't cave to culture and we don't just listen to the loudest voices, even if they have a position and title and are speaking to you from a big screen. Paul says that a spiritually mature community looks to God to be their teacher and to shape the way that we think. Secondly, he goes on to say that spiritual maturity actually has a lot less to do with learning a bunch of things we don't already know and a lot more to do with living the things we already do know. He says, only let us live up to what we have already attained. And when he says here, uh, this phrase, live up to, this is actually a Roman military term meaning to fall in line. You may remember that we've told you that Philippi was actually almost like a retirement community for former Roman soldiers. And Paul is saying that real spiritual maturity uh, is when our lives fall in line with like military precision with the things that we've learned from Jesus. Because real spiritual maturity isn't about how much we know. It's about how well we live the things that we know. Now, my friend Norm taught me about this. He had an expression. He would say, once you know, you can't not know. Once you know, you can't not know. You know, having battled uh, addiction his whole life, I remember the last time he used. His mother had died, and in his grief, he reached out to a familiar crutch. But halfway through using, he realized he didn't even really want to use 
What he wanted was the love and support of his community. So we flushed the remaining substance and made a phone call instead. And as we chatted and kind of celebrated this incredible breakthrough he'd had, he reflected that now that he knew he actually could resist the temptation to use, he could no longer claim to be powerless over his addiction. Now that he knew he could do better, he had to kind of live what he knew and he never used again. Because once you know, you can't not know. You know, in my own life, I wonder how many things have I learned but not lived? You know, like me, so many of us, we've sat through dozens, if not hundreds of sermons and songs and seminars. We've gone to camp, read the books, attended the seminars, gone on the missions trip, maybe even earned some degrees. And it's easy to mistake all of that knowledge and experience for maturity. But Paul says that real maturity uh, isn't about amassing all kinds of knowledge and experience. It's just about putting into practice the simple things that we have learned from Jesus. Things like love your neighbor or forgive people when they hurt you. Don't judge others. Be humble, kind, and generous. See, spiritual maturity isn't about wrapping our heads around some complex doctrine. It's about wrapping our lives around simple devotion to Jesus. Now, this may sound simple, but it's not easy which is why Paul continues. He says, so join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. He says that if we're going to develop to maturity in Christ, we need examples to follow. And this is a familiar refrain for Paul. Elsewhere, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. I mean, I don't know where Paul gets the nerve to say something like that. Can you imagine? Follow me as I follow Christ. You know, and frankly, aren't, aren't we just supposed to only follow Jesus? Well, the answer is yes, in the sense that our devotion and allegiance is meant to be reserved for only Jesus. But while we're meant to follow Jesus alone, we're not meant to follow Jesus alone. It's something that we do in community, benefiting from the faith experience of others. I mean, haven't you ever noticed that there are people around here who worship so much more passionately than you? Have you ever encountered someone around here who just is so humble and servant-hearted, giving away all their time? Maybe you've been in a life group with someone who has just such a deep faith or a vibrant prayer life or an irrational level of joy and peace. Maybe you've met somebody who seems so generous, even though they don't really have that much, and you wonder, how do they do it? Well, rather than being intimidated and discouraged by their maturity, we ought to become students of them and follow their example to help us become better followers of Jesus. And of course, we need to be careful about over-elevating anyone in the community. I mean, in a world with celebrity Christians who have millions of followers, we've seen the rise and fall of so many. And with seemingly uh, endless stories of sexual scandal and, and spiritual abuse, we've got to be careful who we're being influenced by. And that means paying attention to their private life, not just their public persona or platform. You know, it's not something you can do online or through social media. The kind of spiritual role modeling that Paul's talking about is something that happens in life-on-life -life relationship in the context of community where the people are known and where we can observe and emulate people's lifestyle, not just their teaching. 
That's why as Paul is locked away in a Roman prison sending letters, he's saying you've got to find people right inside your community, people who are known to you, people you can ask questions so that you can emulate and follow their example. And he gives them two really good ones to follow. Uh, Epaphroditus and Timothy. Now, we skipped over these verses earlier in our journey through the book of Philippians because they're kind of just, you know, personal notes back and forth between the community. Uh, But I want to read them to you today because I think they're actually a beautiful picture of what Paul is talking in today's text. Back in chapter 2, Paul writes to them. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out to their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself. Because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. And I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. That's Timothy. And then he goes on and he says, but I think it is necessary also to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. And indeed he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him so that when you see him, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves could not give me. Paul says, follow the example of people like Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy, because he doesn't just care about himself, he actually cares for the welfare of others. And Epaphroditus, because he risked his life, uh, even willing to die for the gospel. This kind of humble and sacrificial others orientation. These are the exact words Paul used back in chapter 2 to describe Jesus who, although he was in very nature God, humbled himself and sacrificed his life for others. This is the way of Jesus, the way of the cross. And Paul says, if you find people who are following Jesus like that, follow their example. You know, in my life, I've had so many Timothys and Epaphroditus to help me along. And, you know, what little spiritual maturity I may be able to claim, I owe to the example of those I've been able to follow, people who are far more Christ-like than I am. You know, I I learned how to meet Jesus in the scriptures by following the example of my friend Peter, who was a Bible teacher, and I even bought the same Bible as him. I was trying to follow his example so much. You know, I learned how to worship God and lead others in worship by following the example of my friend Chris, who still leads worship here at Southridge to this day. I learned gratitude by following the example of my grandfather, who began every prayer with God, our Father, we want to thank you. When Sarah and Jade and I got engaged, uh, we asked Dave and Debbie to mentor us in how to have a Christ-centered marriage. And we still use their advice to this day. And when we found out that Sarah Jade was pregnant, I found every parent I could whose children had uh, become adults who followed Jesus. And I asked them what they felt like they did right. I I learned faith from my friend Phil. I learned humility and honesty from Norm. I learned wisdom from Rowan and forgiveness from Neil. I've learned generosity from Jamie and Nicole and joy from David. Fearless hope from Martha and patience, enduring patience from Prisca. 
I'm far from perfect, but I'm a far better Christ follower than I ever could have been on my own because of the examples that I've been able to follow. And I'm so grateful to so many of you. But my question is, what about you? Who are you watching? Whose example are you following to help you become more like Jesus? Do you need to learn how to pray? Do you want to become a better friend, parent, or partner? Are you trying to figure out what it means to actually live a lifestyle of compassion and justice? You know, the good news, folks, is that if you look around, you will see a whole community of people around you. And while we are all far from perfect, um, there are so many of us who have journeyed with Jesus and have learned and are experiencing, you know, growth in our maturity towards Christ. And when you find somebody who shows you Jesus, grab a seat and become a student of them. You know, learn everything you can from them. Buy them a coffee, pe a coffee pepper them with questions. Invite them to ask you questions and learn as much as you can from their example so you can become more Christ-like like them. And if you don't know who to ask, talk to any one of our pastors or staff or our volunteers or the person who invited you to church. But make it your business to surround yourself with people who show you Jesus and follow their example. But I will say, choose your role models wisely. Because Paul warns, he says, For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Now, this is some pretty harsh language, and I want to say a couple things. Um, first, elsewhere, Paul reminds us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. What he means by that is that um, there is no human being, no person on earth who is God's or your or my enemy. But he does say that there are times when good, even well-meaning people can orient their lives in such a way that is actually in direct opposition to the way of the cross. And to be clear, he's not talking about, you know, the bad guys out there. He's not talking about sinners or atheists or people from other religions. He's talking about Christians right in their community. You know, the people they're sitting beside at church who are singing the songs and nodding along with the sermon. And yet in their day-to-day -day lives, they are not living as a reflection of humble, selfless, sacrificial, others-oriented love. They are living as enemies in opposition to the cross. And he says, if we follow their example, not only will we spiritually self-destruct, but we will destroy any chance that we have of becoming a community that rises to the heights of harmony. So how do we spot them? And how do we even recognize some of these tendencies in ourselves? Well, Paul gives them two things to look for. He says, their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. You know, grammatically in the original text, these two lines are linked, and you're going to see that in a second. But uh, he starts by saying their God is their stomach. Now, what he's not saying is that they literally worship their bellies or even food per se, but that they are fully devoted to satisfying their own appetites and desires, impulses and cravings. You know, they're self-oriented consumers, basically the opposite of Timothy. You know, they don't care for other people's needs and interests they really just only think about themselves. And Paul says, if our faith resembles that, if we are living out of a self-centeredness, then we are living as enemies of the cross. It's the height of spiritual 
immaturity. Similarly, he goes on to say, you know, not only is their God their stomach, but he says their glory is in their shame. Their glory is in their shame. At first glance, it almost seems like what he's saying is that they glory or revel in things that are shameful. You know, almost like uh, when it comes to sin, they have no shame. Maybe they even celebrate bad behavior. But I don't actually think that that's Paul's issue here. I think to understand what Paul means by their glory is in their shame, you've got to recognize here that Paul's being a little bit clever. He's actually, there, there are two body parts in this little couplet. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. The word shame first appears in the Bible at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. We read that uh, Adam was with his wife in the garden. They were naked, but neither of them felt any shame. Uh, A chapter later, after in the aftermath of sin, uh, they both instantly feel shame. And the first thing that they do is sew together clothes to cover up their body parts. Now zoom ahead to the end of the Bible, and in Revelation chapter 16, we read, Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed, so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame. Uh, do you kind of get what I'm getting at here? Is it, is it becoming any clearer? Is anyone feeling a, a little bit uncomfortable right now? Well, before we get too weird here, I want to remind you of the passage that Carrie Latticeur walked us through last week, um, where she talked about how Paul, before he encountered Jesus, had gloried or boasted in his, uh, you know, stunning and perfect religious pedigree and performance. He was second to none in his religious devotion. And the, the core image or the central symbol of that religious devotion was circumcision. Paul, uh, circumcision uh, is a practice that had been handed down by uh, the father of the people of Israel, Abraham, who had been circumcised as a sign of God's covenant with him. And, And Paul is saying that his pride and glory had been in, uh, this act of circumcision, literally in his shame. And, uh, he's saying that if we live a life of faith that is rooted and anchored in, all of our ideas about what we can do for God or what we've accomplished, our our sense of self-righteous spiritual adherence or religious adherence, rather than recognizing faith as a gift from God, we're at risk of our Christianity starting to make us feel like we're better than other people. And he says that this kind of conceited, arrogant, self-righteous sense of superiority over others is the exact opposite of Epaphroditus. Rather than seeing himself as so important, Epaphroditus saw his life as expendable in service to the gospel. Paul's point is clear. He's saying we need to beware, watch out and beware for self-absorbed and self-righteous Christians. I'm going to say that again. We need to beware of self-absorbed and self-righteous Christians. Do not follow their example. Do not become like them. Because to do so is to make us enemies of the cross and is the height of spiritual immaturity. I wonder how many of us with just a a little bit of self-reflection could admit that maybe at times we've acted as enemies of the cross. And maybe we've thought a little too much, too often, too highly of ourselves. Maybe our Christianity has been a bit selfish. Or maybe it's allowed us to feel like we're 
superior to other people? And if so, Paul says that our focus needs readjustment because we have set our minds on earthly things. We have allowed our mindset to be dragged down to worldly ways of thinking, and we have not recognized what he goes on to say, that we, that our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Here, Paul reminds us who we are and who we're becoming in our future with Christ. That our uh, true identity is rooted in the idea that we are citizens of another realm, the eternal kingdom of God, where everything is under the jurisdiction of Jesus. This is the real reality in which we are living out of. And uh, it's our true destiny. It's the, the substance of our hope. He says, in spite of our current circumstances, this is where all this maturity talk is headed to a time when Jesus will transform us into glorious reflections of the image of God. And as we work together harmoniously to follow each other's examples, to become more like Christ, Jesus will one day transform us and restore in us the full image of God and make us fully like Christ. That's where this is all headed. That's where this is going. And I, and I guess I should say, since we're uh, looking at a passage of scripture that talks about heaven, um, I want to say that if your vision of what your future in heaven looks like still kind of feels a little bit about like getting everything you ever wanted or satisfying all of your deepest desires, or maybe proving that you were right all along, if our understanding of eternity with God still smacks of selfishness and superiority, then it's possible, just maybe, that we might have been following Jesus for all the wrong reasons. Because the culmination of a life lived in following and maturing in Jesus is an eternity spent loving and living like Jesus, who's the epitome of humble, selfless, sacrificial, others-oriented love. That is our true destiny. That's where this is all going. And I'd like to kind of put an exclamation point on that by rereading the very first verse we read when Paul said, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. You know, if you've been around our Welland community lately, you've heard me many times say, I love being church with all of you, and I really, really do. You know, we're far from perfect, and we've got lots of things we're still growing at, but I, I think I love being church with all of you because I see Jesus in you. I see Jesus in your commitment to serving others. I see Jesus in the humility of our posture towards people who are different. And I look forward to continuing to growing and developing and maturing in Jesus as we look to God to lead us. And as we look to each other to be examples of what it means to live a Christ-like life. But as we do this, I want us to be super, super clear that spiritual maturity isn't about uh, filling our heads with a bunch of knowledge. It's not about how much you know. It is about how well we live the things that we know. We need to be on guard and careful not to simply be believers in Jesus, to recognize that we've been called not just to be believers in Jesus, but followers of Jesus. 
And I look forward to following Jesus together with all of you. So as the band comes forward and they're going to lead us in a song of response, I want to pray together with you and over you uh, this final verse in Paul's passage. This is a prayer of blessing over you. He writes, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Jesus, would you help us to stand firm in you in this way, to stand firm in our commitment to looking to you and not allowing our differences of opinions to divide us. And as we look to you, that we would also be able to look to each other as examples who together are committed to following you and learning from each other. Help us to pursue you with all of our hearts. And Jesus, we look forward to the day when you will fully make us who we were always meant to be, a full reflection of the glorious image of God. So Jesus, we give you our hearts. May we follow you fully. Amen.